Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I do think the roadmap is extremely disappointing in terms of its lack of ambition. He needs to sell hope to people. I rarely cheer when I watch television, but I did cheer when I watched Lawrence Fox on Question Time. Let's put it this way. All I need is a parrot for the full Long John Silver look. Don't tell me what I should think. Let's have a conversation about it and reach a consensus and decide what to do. Don't hector me. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. A third of British adults, 18 million people no less, have now been vaccinated. Covid cases and hospital admissions are plummeting. And since mid-January, daily deaths from, related to or with Covid are down no less than 70%. Yet Boris Johnson's long-awaited route map out of lockdown, unveiled on Monday, turns out to be a long and winding road. The UK will surely be the first European nation to vaccinate our people. Will we be the last to unlock? The Archbishop of Canterbury got the vaccine early due to his key worker status, even though the churches are shut, we read in Alison Pearson's Telegraph column. <laughs> Co-pilot Pearson also admits to jab jealousy. Jab upmanship, she calls it. And here's a Planet Normal exclusive. Stop press. She's also got a gammy eye. Does this mean, dear co-pilot, you've swapped your Planet Normal space helmet this week for a Captain Pugwash eye patch? Do tell. Or was it Cutthroat Jake who had the eye patch? I can't remember. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. All I need is a parrot for the full Long John Silver look. And a peg leg. And a peg leg. There was quite a lot of turbulence on our rocket last week after I said I was on the fence about the vaccine passport. Planet Normal listeners were not impressed, co-pilot Halligan. So uh, in the turbulence, I was thrown about the rocket and uh, knocked my eye on the, the door of your Twix locker. <laughs> Twix locker. That's my story and I'm, and I'm sticking to it. I have to say before we go into the woes of the week that it was a bit of a, of a lockdown low today when because I had one closed eye, my iPhone couldn't even do the facial recognition. So. Oh, my God. Oh, you poor thing. No, I'm fine. On to the meat of what's been happening, really. I mean, Prime Minister unveiling the roadmap to freedom, four key stages with this sort of arbitrary five-week period in the middle where the sage scientists get to decide whether we've been good enough and whether we have to go back to the beginning and, and start again. I don't know what you thought about it, Liam. I mean, 
obviously the main thing is schools are reopening on March the 8th and many, many weary parents will welcome that. Although I'm much less impressed by the idea that secondary school pupils are going to have to wear masks, which I, I think is horrible. And not long ago, the Prime Minister said he agreed with the fact it was useless and they would never have to wear masks in schools. I think that's a sop to the teachers, the mask wearing in the class. But but really after that, it's very, very slow progress on 29th of March, some outdoor sport can resume. You know, those dangerous games of tennis and golf that have been banned can come back. The stay-at-home instruction is going to be scrapped and groups of six or two households can meet out of doors. So what we're seeing really is a Brian the snail unlocking extreme in its caution. And what we want, Zebedee. Boing. Yeah, boing. We do. <laughs> Even Ermintrude would be okay. Ermintrude the cow got around quite quickly. <laughs> yes. yes. Mr. Rust Mr. Rusty is what we want, zipping around on that on that little bike. So I think the big disappointments is that pub gardens can't even open until the 12th of April and it's 17th of May, Liam, three months until hospitality. And it's not that long ago that we were promised that Easter can be the new Christmas. Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the hospitality industry is warning this week that that three months delay is going to cost another £9 billion. And bear in mind, Liam, that Publicans, restaurateurs, hairdressers, they spent an absolute fortune, didn't they, on COVID secure measures. I mean, basically, you're safer in your hair salon than you are in a hospital. So all these things are really disappointing. And I have a vivid memory of Boris saying the cavalry is coming. The vaccine is the cavalry. We can hear the toot of the bugle. The cavalry is well and truly here. As you said earlier, 18 million adults vaccinated. Astonishing. COVID cases plummeting, hospital admissions are down a staggering 75%. We'll hear from George a bit later about that. But basically, the PM should now be in a tearing hurry to restore these freedoms. I think we're sometimes in danger of forgetting how unnatural and wrong is the state we're in. Every day, you're not allowed to have your sister or your brother into your house is a wrong day. Politicians, I think, now should be focusing on getting those freedoms back to us as quickly as possible. And Boris has said he's going to be guided by the data, not the dates. But I don't know if you've had a look at the actual document, but it keeps saying the dates and then it said, and no earlier. That's at the earliest point. It is a very doctrinaire document, isn't it? I think the roadmap to hell is paved with good intentions to to coin a phrase. I think Boris desperately does want to unlock. I don't think this is his style. I think he's still not just spooked because he had a near-death experience in the early part of lockdown, but he's also spooked politically because of what it does to his reputation to promise things that then don't happen. So we now have the tyranny of low expectations, don't we? Constantly mm-hmm. under-promising to the public, but the under-promising gets so much it becomes extremely depressing and it, it curtails hope, it curtails enterprise, and it risks damaging us psychologically and economically even more. I think a lot of the people that are making the decisions and who wrote that document are there. They're professional people. They're living in a public sector bubble with their superannuated pensions. They've got savings. They don't understand what's happening at the business sharp end. They don't understand what's happening in the bottom 10% of the income distribution, it seems to me. I do think the roadmap is extremely disappointing in terms of its lack of ambition. He needs to sell 
hope to people. And also, Alison, I completely agree with you. Schools are opening on the 8th of March. We don't know if that's going to be all years. Gavin Williamson, Russia should shut up and go away, is now (laughs) dancing on a pinhead. It may be that different years go back at different times. That wasn't made clear when the announcement first came to light. And I think the idea of kids wearing masks in schools is is ridiculous, frankly. It's traumatic for them. It makes it very difficult to to learn. A lot of people would say that if you aren't at risk of serious symptoms, if you get COVID, as people under 25 aren't, of course, Mm. then having a, a kind of dirty rag in front of your face is more likely to make you ill than not. And I think that is a major problem. And that may be one of the flashpoints when there is a backlash to these plans. And I think there will be a backlash. And you do wonder if Boris is prepared to take on the militant teaching unions who are still threatening to strike. There are half a million teachers in the UK. Many, many, many of them have worked extremely hard and desperately need a rest. But I do think the unions who many of the teaching rank and file are scared of, in my experience, and certainly we've had so many emails to Planet Normal along those lines, the unions are being fantastically intransigent and lacking in a kind of constructive approach Mm. to try and get kids back to school. And I think that they are in grave danger, Alison, of seriously misreading the public mood, the, the leaders of those teaching unions. I agree. And I also think, Liam, that testing school children, we're about to start the mass testing of school children. And I think that's a potential disaster because when the prevalence of the virus is low and it is very low at the moment, I mean, in in my town, there were three COVID cases last week, just to give you some kind of idea. So lots of the country prevalence is very low. And when that happens, you will get a huge number of false positives. So it's quite likely that some of these results from the school children will be used as a stick to kind of beat, beat us with and to delay the roadmap, which I think would be disastrous. But if you think about it, Liam, there's this you know, central irony. If the UK is going to be the first European country to vaccinate our people, surely we can't be the last to liberate them. Yeah. I mean, I know we were having a laugh earlier weren't we, that Oxford University School for Government had found that we had the third strictest lockdown in the world. I oh my mean, God. absolutely extraordinary. I think Planet Normal is going to have to go for a rest to North Korea, one of those more sort of, you know, laid back kind of places. London's just behind Pyongyang, isn't it? Crikey, as, as, a, as a good place for a night out. <laughs> completely is. The Telegraph had a very good story suggesting that the government was for a major easing of lockdown before Easter, which is when obviously some hospitality businesses and tourism make a big chunk of their income over Easter. But once again, here comes Sage, here come the mathematical modellers saying that that relaxation could lead to an extra 55,000 deaths. Now, I'm going to ask you something, Liam. Where are those 55,000 deaths? In the middle of summer. In the middle of summer, we'll have, by the end of April, we'll have vaccinated almost all the over 50s in the country. Astonishing achievement. 99% of all COVID deaths and 88% of hospital admissions will have been eliminated by that vaccine rollout. Now, where is the 55,000 deaths going to come from? And I'm getting, actually, I'm getting really angry with these people now, because as you said, whatever planet they're living on, it's not planet normal. They're shroud waving. Again, there's absolutely no sign at all 
In fact, all the signs are that the epidemic is retreating now, that this is, you know, it's, it's, it's running its course, and yet they're still terrorising ministers. And of course, the Prime Minister wants to be cautious, because when people wave those big numbers at him, should we have a blast of George? Would you like a, a Absolutely, blast go for it. So let me just say that George is a senior source within NHS England, with full access to the internal NHS England database. We don't disclose his or her identity we're confident, aren't we, of the authenticity of George's Absolutely. stats. That's why you report them. By definition, we can't independently verify them because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're published at all in some cases. But we've done our journalistic checks and we know that these are the official NHS England numbers within their database. They are, but they remain claims, Liam. That's how we present them, although I know Planet Normal listeners are very grateful to George for giving us a slightly different perspective. So the question I put to George this week was, what's going on with all the mathematical modellers coming up with these scary figures? And George said, we have a vaccine now, which we didn't have last year or even a few months ago, yet they are making these astonishing assertions based on what happened previously when the situations are not comparable. Over the last four weeks, we've had a steady decline of around 20% each week on the number of occupied beds. Occupancy has reduced by around 4,000 COVID beds per week. The number of general beds occupied now is 13,219, and that is down from 31,459 at the peak on the 18th of January. ICU beds occupied now is 2,398, and that is down from 4,030 at the peak on the 25th of January. These are huge percentage falls. And it is today 339 days since the Prime Minister said for the first time, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. And what George is telling us is that the NHS is now not under threat. So that criteria has been met. The British people have made huge sacrifices, been remarkably compliant, I think, Liam. I Some agree. might say timid, but astonishingly respectful. Maybe they didn't think that we'd be that respectful. Maybe they underestimated how respectful. Underestimated us. Yeah, I agree. George says that looking at the discharge situation report, Around half of all patients who could be discharged on any given day are not being discharged at the moment because of administrative delays in the hospitals and capacity issues in onward care facilities. I imagine they can't put them into care homes. This is the main reason that discharges aren't happening. And really, we should be looking at even lower occupancy than we are as for the admissions, in mid-January, we were getting 4,500 or so admissions or new COVID diagnoses. You'll remember, Liam, the distinction that some people are admitted to hospital with COVID symptoms, some people catch COVID in hospital. George thinks the nosocomial infections have gone down. That word again, your favourite word. That word again, nosocomial. Oh, really yes, clever knowing so that good word. At but that. anyway, it's gone down. I know I'm good at that. <laughs> Yesterday, there were a thousand admissions, and that is a 75% reduction. Obviously, as beds start to empty of COVID patients, they fill up with other patients. It looks like we are currently running at about 83% bed occupancy, which is extremely low for this for time, any of time of for year. For any time of year. But especially, yeah. especially for winter. We're still in the winter rush, aren't we? This is the thing. We're still in the winter rush where I'm sitting, Alison. The sun's out today, but we're still in the middle of the peak respiratory season or just after well, it for the UK. Coming out of it. Coming out of it, but there's nowhere near 
the time of year where NHS bed occupancy should be low in seasonal terms. And yet it is. It's at 83%. Everyone knows that the NHS operates on a kind of just-in-time basis with buffers zones very, very narrow. I think these are incredible numbers. And I think in general, Alison, as you said so brilliantly in your column this week, the government doesn't assess on the what's on the other side of the lockdown scale in terms of health, non-COVID health outcomes, education, mental health, and so on. And God, we've had some emails about mental health recently, oh. and I'll read out some of them later. But look at this education thing, okay? Every every parent in the country of school-aged children knows, even if you're a, a flashy independent school or if you're the, the local state school down the road, Nothing wrong with that. Everyone knows that kids are not getting the education that they should be. So the government, just today before parliamentary prime minister's question time, the government said, oh, here's another 420 million on education for a catch up fund. We can have summer schools. It's going to be great. Yeah, it sounds like a big number. So 420 million, right? That's four fifths of 1% of our school's budget. I mean, that's mm. that's no money really at all. And I'm not, you know, I don't go for big spending normally, but that is no answer to what's been happening in education and look at the outcomes in terms of the labor market look at these new unemployment numbers yes it's 5.1% unemployment that's still quite low by uh, historic standards though as we've said on planet normal and as many other economists now are saying these are underestimates of the real level of unemployment and the unemployment numbers that did come out the official ones for december showed that of the of the 727,000 drop we saw on company payrolls in December, three-fifths of those were under 25s. And yeah. this is the danger that we're getting back to an early mm. 80s situation mm. where people never get into work or if they lose work, they lose the habit of work and you get core long-term unemployment. This is a major danger that we face. And remember, that unemployment crisis of the early 80s upended British politics. I think that was one of the reasons last week when I ran into difficulty with our wonderful listeners, you know, we were talking about the idea of the vaccine passport. My children are in that bang in the middle of yeah. that age group you've just outlined. And I hear the whole time about their friends who've, you know, lost jobs or um, my son's at university. You can imagine what that's like. I mean, that's one thing that Boris didn't even mention yeah. in this roadmap. I yeah. think it's sit tight Unreal. till after Easter. Unreal that they're paying these vast sums, they were going to be in huge debts. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, Liam, but even before the lockdown, they'd had university lecturers strike. So I think they've probably had this year, they probably had possibly, a, you know, six weeks of actual, of actual university experience. It is absolute madness. We were both lucky enough to go to university. Think of what happened to us there, the massive impact on us, not just intellectually, which sounds pompous, but socially and, and in terms of confidence and life experiences, all those things. It's so difficult to get them back. I feel strongly about this. As you know, my eldest child is at university or not at university. Not at university, and, and, exactly. Another of my children is can't sit her A-levels this year. I mean, these are major, major impositions on the life chances of young people who have done nothing wrong except work hard. 
I think there's growing anger. I mean, this is anecdotal, but I'm hearing about they've been very, very patient, haven't they? They've been sitting inside their rooms and they've been fined if they have, you know, sort of one person over for a cup of tea or a glass of wine. I mean, the, this is the age bracket which isn't affected by COVID and yet they are paying this sort of swinging price for it. And I think we're going to really need to focus on that, on that age cohort as we move forward. But Coming back to this vaccine passport, which you'll have noticed, Co-Pilot Halligan is now going to be called the Digital COVID Certificate. The COVID, this is not a vaccine passport <laughs> this document. This is not a vaccine passport <laughs> document. Well, since last week, because I'm, you know, I, you know, I'm a very impressionable, but I've had so many emails from listeners and, and brilliant emails. I'll read some of them out later. That smell of burning rubber is Pearson doing a complete U-turn <clears throat> on, on the reverse ferret, on, reverse, reverse ferret, ferret <clears throat> on the abs- absolutely. <clears throat> you know, the reason I was wavering about supporting the vaccine passport is because I'm obviously so desperate for my children to resume normal life and you think it will facilitate them getting back into the the workplace of course not just the workplace um actually my daughter said last night it was really moving she was excited because june the 21st should be should be please god the last day of these legal restrictions and she said oh mum, there are all these you know songs and different music that's come out you know this year and we're all going to go and dance to the new songs we've never been able to dance to. And, you know, and my heart welled up, really. Your eye was moist. My eye. Yes, thank you. Yes, my eye. The other one's got your cutthroat, Jake. I I think it was cutthroat, Jake, that had the eye patch, not Captain Pugwash. I think Captain Pugwash had one as well. But just to to say that reading everyone's very, very passionate arguments, including from uh, vaccine specialists and so on, but if you have a digital COVID certificate, that means you're saying to people under 50 who are healthy, who have no need of a vaccination, no, you're going to have to get a vaccination. And the other drawback, which I've obviously had, drawn very violently to my to my one-eyed attention <laughs> is that you risk you risk creating a kind of apartheid don't you you there are people who have perhaps religious ob- objections ethical objections i don't share those but i am very mindful of the fact that it would i think you didn't you say last week it's going to look pretty damn strange isn't it if we've got restaurants which are turning away say bangladeshi britons or whatever people who have very good reasons in their own minds why they don't want the vaccine. So co-pilot Pearson um, absolutely reverses her position. What, what do you think, Liam? I think it's really tough. I think it's inevitable that there are vaccine passports for international travel. Mm. If you turn the telescope around the other way, you know, if you're the Greek economy, for instance, huge percentage of your revenues come from tourism and you want vaccine passports for people visiting you, then people are going to have to get vaccine passports. I mean, I don't know about you, I did a lot of independent travel in my student days, you know, wandering around Africa and Asia. It was almost a badge of honour to have a little booklet with all your jabs in it. Yeah. But then again, on the other hand, these these were conditions like yellow fever and smallpox and diphtheria that, that kill you. And not to say that COVID doesn't, but of course, the fatality of those ghastly diseases is much, much, much higher than COVID. Again, not to take anything away from the people that COVID has taken from us. I think it's going to be a a nightmare for the the government. They're not going to want to introduce vaccine passports, but then they'd have to legislate to stop some employers wanting to have their employees vaccinated. It's going to be very, very tough indeed. 
I think it has to be mandatory for care home workers. I'm sorry, yeah. I know I yeah. know there are people who are worried about See, even you after your after your magnificent reverse ferret there, you're you're tracking back. I mean, come <laughs> no. on. What kind of no, what kind I, of columnist no. are you? I mean, it's tough, isn't it? It's so tough. We're gonna have to keep discussing it, I think, over the next few months. Even a previous very famous Daily Telegraph columnist <laughs> called uh Alexander de Feffel Johnson wrote when Tony Blair was threatening to <laughs> never, introduce never ID cards. No, never heard of him. What, what, what happened to him? But he said that if uh, the Blair government introduced ID cards, I will eat it. <laughs> so that's what Boris Unplugged was like. So this is the image in my mind. He's going to be laying in front of the diggers at the Heathrow <laughs> extra <laughs> rum ray with his mouth stuffed full of dog-eared <laughs> vaccine passports. Hello, former England hooker Brian Moore here. Well, the Six Nations is back and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we will get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, mall and TMO decision. You can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast you don't need to. So just search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss it. Last week's Planet Normal guest was British swimming legend Sharon Davis. She told us why the world needs the delayed 2020 Tokyo Olympics to go ahead this summer, using vaccine passports if needs be, and why we should exercise caution when allowing trans athletes to compete against female-born women to ensure fairness. It was a clear, courageous and heartfelt interview by one of Britain's sporting greats, and you can hear it on the Planet Normal archive. This week we're joined in our Rocket of Right Thinking by Lord Michael Grade. He started out in journalism in the 60s on the Daily Mirror, then joined London Weekend Television in the early 70s, just in time for its heyday. Michael Grade's rare combination of commercial acumen, journalistic nous and nose for public opinion saw him rise to the giddy heights of controller of BBC One, CEO of Channel 4, and then executive director of ITV. Michael has unrivaled insights into the production, business of and future of television. So I started by asking him, on behalf of Planet Normal listeners, reflecting your countless emails on the subject, what does he make of the performance of our TV news broadcasters throughout this pandemic? I have two major beefs. One is the very aggressive questioning in the press conferences, particularly in the early days, there was a sense of journalists, BBC, ITN and so on, trying to catch ministers out, trying to catch people out. Yabu sucks. You know, you said three weeks ago, you know, it would be nine and a quarter and it's nine and a half. It was just Yabu sucks, which I, I didn't think added to anybody's understanding of what was going on. The other thing I, that drives me crazy is the blame game. Anything that doesn't follow on rails and, and go according to what the journalists think should happen, suddenly it, it's the search for the guilty and looking for blame, trying to lay blame everywhere. That doesn't help the audience's understanding. So I'm, I get quite cross about that. And I always get the sense that when the news is good, the journalists are absolutely livid. Do you think that's a political thing? No, I don't. No, I just think it's the way we are in this country. We are, we've got into this blame culture. It may be a function of the adversarial 
nature of our politics, but it's everything is blame. Who's to blame? You know, as soon as there's a disaster, the first question is who's to blame? Well, let's find out exactly what happened before we blame anybody. What advice would you give Tim Davey now, who is, of course, the new director general at the BBC? Well, I, I know Tim and I've worked with him and I have huge faith in him. He's not a journalist, which he would readily uh, admit to. Uh, it's always about picking good people to have around you. And, and that's that's the key. It's all about leadership. And, and that's the real test for him. When he's picking good people, what do you think he should look for? I think he's got to find people who have uh, a broader interest in, uh, in different viewpoints. People who will question the prevailing narrative. The prevailing narrative builds up, you know, the, the, the media almost as a pack. So what I want to see is people who lead BBC journalism, who do, do not necessarily accept the prevailing narrative that builds up on a story. Talking of prevailing narratives, I think the BBC was widely seen to have been quite even handed in its coverage ahead of the June 2016 Brexit referendum. How do you think its coverage fared after that referendum? I disagree with you there. I don't think there was bias, but I think there was a lot of sloppiness. Endless experts were wheeled in to opine on the pluses and minuses of Brexit versus Remain. Never once did I ever hear any expert asked which way they were going to vote or which way they had voted. People will always select the arguments that suit their point of view. We all do that. I was, I was a Brexiteer uh, in the end. Uh, and I will select the arguments that suit my case. So there was an awful lot of loaded experts who we never were never revealed for what they believed. I was a Brexiteer in the end too, very much an analytical rather than an emotional decision in my case as somebody focused on economics. Would you agree though, Michael, that after the referendum, there did seem a sense that all our broadcast news people regretted what the public had decided, willing on a second referendum, suggesting that the referendum itself could be reversed. The Remain lobby was very, very successful at manipulating the media. I won't say that the media took a view, but they were very, very susceptible to the, the, to the Remain lobby, which continues to this day. Fact is that a lot of Remainers now, in the light of, of, of the way uh, Brussels has imploded over the over the vaccine, which is rather good to see, although I feel sorry for the people in mainland Europe who are not getting vaccinated, realise that actually the Brexiteers did have a case. What do you think should now happen with Channel 4, Michael? You were a very successful chief executive. You left Channel 4 just as I arrived at Channel 4. I heard you were coming, so I left as fast <laughs> as I could. But the, the, it is a very important uh, British institution. There are political moves afoot to maybe change its structure. What are the dangers of changing the structure of Channel 4? Let me say straight away, I sit on a panel advising the government on the future of public service broadcasting. So I don't want to prejudge what our findings are going to be or what our recommendations or what our advice will be to government. Suffice it to say... That public service broadcasting, essentially that's ITV, BBC, Channel 5 and Channel 4, live by a definition that was created, you know, nearly 100 years ago. We need to think very hard about what we want. How do we redefine public service broadcasting? 
and then how do we deliver it and then how do we pay for it? Channel 4's model, the current management for whom I have huge admiration are doing an amazing job, but we're trying to look 10 to 20 years out and to see what what the dangers are. And we haven't reached a conclusion. We've only just started our inquiry, so it'll be a while before we conclude. Do you think, though, that the notion of privatisation is it, it could be considered, if not commercial money entirely? Do we need some more commercial kind of acumen within Channel 4? Uh, no, I don't think that's the problem. I think if you change a funding model of, of an organisation in media, you immediately change, not necessarily for better or worse, you change the editorial imperatives to ratings above all, all else. Um, and it would change the nature of the channel if you privatised it. That's not to say I would be against privatisation. I don't know yet. I haven't kind of reached a conclusion. It needs very, very careful thought. And there is a direct relationship between your source of funding uh, and what eventually gets on the air. What we have to protect is the British creative industries Absolutely. and the investment in, in British programming. That's one of the great success stories of the last 20 years or more. It's a phenomenal story of growth, jobs, social mobility. I mean, I'll give you an example. Ridley Scott, the great A-list Hollywood director, his father was a riveter in the shipyards in Newcastle. Yeah. Although his mother always said he was in shipping, which I rather liked. <laughs> shipping uh, magnet. Yeah, ship, well, shipping. He was in shipping. <laughs> but he was a riveter in the in the and Ridley Scott's ended up as a as as an A-list director in Hollywood. I mean, what a journey. That's social mobility at work and and the, the creative industries don't need protection, but they need nurturing and we need a structure that makes sure that we continue that growth. We're obviously on the cusp of some big changes in broadcast news in the UK. Andrew Neil has got GB News. He's got funding. It's about to launch soon. Do you think GB News can succeed? Do you think it should succeed? Well, I haven't seen it yet, so the jury's out. If the advertisers uh, will support it and, and they get enough coverage uh, and if they can make it work economically with their remit, it's a welcome choice. I think it's got every chance. I, I, I'm not sure I would invest my own money in it. Let me put it that way. You know, more competition is good. As I say, I wouldn't invest in it personally, but that's probably a reason why it'll probably be a huge success because usually when I invest, <laughs> things go wrong. So uh, I, I expect it to be a massive success because I haven't invested in it. <laughs> you just mentioned social mobility there. You're from a Jewish family, your family steeped in the sort of creativity of, of people in the East End, the talent, the industry. Obviously, your father famously was the theatrical agent Leslie Grade. Your uncle was the impresario Lou Grade. Your own family story is a story of social mobility and, and industry. How do you think social mobility is getting on in the UK today? I think it's a lot better than people think. When I was a kid, you know, the, the city was a patrician environment where, you know, depends what regiment you were in, what school you went to, all that stuff. That's all gone. Thatcher swept all that away. We live in a much more egalitarian society and there, there's opportunities for everybody today. Nobody asks you today. What, I mean, you'd be laughed at if you asked somebody what school they went to. If you walk in, you're stupid enough to say you went to Eton, you wouldn't get the job, which is madness. It's could have gone the other way. But but I, I, we live in a very egalitarian society today. You know, my, my family went into show business because it was open to anybody. 
my uncle Lou, my father Leslie, they they were amongst the founders of ITV. They just had the idea one day, let's let's go into television. How about social mobility in our own business, Michael, in, in the media? I must say my sense is that somebody from my background, a, a working class Irish Catholic background, wouldn't get the breaks now that I got in the early and mid 1990s. I, I think there is still a tendency in recruitment to look to the red brick uh, universities for recruits. I, I, I think, and I think that's a shame. But on the other hand, more and more kids are going to university these days of all all levels. Uh, maybe that will feed through in time, but, but it is a bit Oxbridge. It is a bit. Do you think there's the danger that as we make advances, welcome and long overdue advances in terms of gender and diversity, diversity of ethnicity, we may be missing out in terms of diversity of opinion, which in a democracy is surely the most important diversity of all. Yes, I agree with that. The diversity agenda has moved on a long way from when I first went into the media, into television, certainly in 1973. It's unrecognisable in front of and behind the camera. And we all did our bit to, to move that along. But it's diversity of opinion that is so important. But that comes down again to too many of the media, big media outlets are slaves to a narrative that builds up and they can't shake it. The BBC particularly should be above that and should be sometimes the narrative is spot on, but it isn't always. And it's the BBC's job really to set the gold standard of journalism and to question the narrative and not not be slaves to it. With that comes diversity of opinion. Now, you're no stranger to controversy, Michael Gray. You often run towards controversy with open arms and you've penned a letter, haven't you, to Ofcom telling our media regulator not to take sides in the culture war. What drove you to do that? And are you glad that you wrote the letter? I was furious. I couldn't believe that they were taking seriously a complaint against a channel which exists to plunder the archives of long forgotten films and shows from TV and, and the This cinema. is the, talk, the Talking Pictures channel. Talking Pictures, yeah, which I'm a, a devotee of, um, <laughs> uh, totally. And they t some idiot wrote in and complained that somebody blacked up in a, in, a, in a show from 1970. I just couldn't believe it. And I thought I, thought I needed to make a statement of the, to stop any woke warrior apparatchiks in Ofcom from pushing that agenda, which seemed to me absolutely ludicrous. Now, there is a line, and I said in my letter, I'm not sure anybody really wants to see the black and white minstrel show today. Sure. I think, I think that would be deeply offensive. But a 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s shows and films where the mores were, and the social attitudes were completely different from today. The audience is not stupid. They know this is all old stuff. They're ridiculous. But I must say, reading, reading the letter, and listeners should find it online, it's absolutely fabulous. Your steel-tipped tabloid pen was going like the clappers. <laughs> Under your talking pictures probe, you said to Ofcom, you must be, to be consistent, you must, capital letters, make sure Gone With The Wind is locked in the vault for its stereotypical portrayal Oscar winning of a black maidservant. Another one for your hit list. Orson Welles blacked up to play Othello in his movie. You have had a result from Ofcom though, haven't you? Well, they, they've they gone through their process uh, and decided that it was what was shown was 
in the context of that channel was acceptable. So I don't think we'll be hearing any more about that. I, I must say, I, I rarely cheer when I watch television, but I did cheer when I watched Lawrence Fox on Question Time. I thought, at last, a voice for us who, who are so sick of the intolerance of it's it's not the agenda the agenda is fine and i i respect people's points of view and, and so on i just respect the tone in which they they do it uh the woke brigade you know pulling statues down against the law we should live within the law in this kind there are laws against race hate and there are laws against uh, pulling down statues <laughs> if you want to pull a statue down because you think it's it's inappropriate fine let's have the debate and let's do it lawfully but it's this ghastly uh, hectoring mm. zealotry which i find uh, really offensive but i don't want to ban anything i'm against banning I, I like to have a debate and i believe in tolerance and and i believe that there are people who have a very strong point of view about the celebration of people who who thrive through slavery and so on i think that's a perfectly honest and proper debate but don't hector me and don't tell me what i should think let's have a conversation about it and reach a consensus and decide what to do in each case don't hector me so if you did have a vote as a peer you don't if you did have a vote would you be backing young mr fox's reclaim party as always i would wait to watch the debate hear what he and his party have to say about other things and make my decision on polling day, which I have always done. I like what he has to say about the the woke brigade. I'm supportive of what he says. Whether whether I would go as far as to vote for him, I'm not sure. Final question, Michael. Do you think the BBC's licence fee will exist in its current form in five years' time? I think that depends on the British public's willingness to support it. I think the BBC's licence fee has always been at the mercy of where public opinion is and if there was a great groundswell uh, of public opposition to it then i think that would be a problem for the bbc everything needs to be looked at the bbc is a great institution but there are two bbcs there's bbc journalism and then there's, then there's the bbc that produces uh, fleabag and all the wonderful uh, dramas uh, and uh, the nature programs and, and the wonderful mm. stuff that they do yes it's the journalism that gets them into trouble but that's the job they're there to do is to cause trouble but but it should be done uh with a, an eye on all points of view and not being slaves to the sort of tabloid narrative he's good value isn't he michael grade oh my new crush <laughs> <laughs> i really enjoyed that liam and i thought you know from him saying that the remain lobby was very very successful at manipulating the media and we've always said that haven't we to the going on about how much he hates the sort of zealotry and this endless pushing of the narrative. And that's that's one reason why we decided to launch Planet Normal, wasn't it? That's right. And I get a lot of reassurance talking to him as somebody that does films on television and tries to get more complex ideas onto prime time. It is really, really tough. There seems to be such a lack of ambition among a lot of television producers these days, thinking basically that the public are thick, as Michael Grade said, that they can't handle different ideas. Well, I richly enjoyed seeing my co-pilot on the telly this week in your excellent dispatches. There was Halligan, a brooding Heathcliffian figure up on the moors. I was in search of the magic money tree. <laughs> I know you were, and you found the magic money tree. That was with it. You had that marvelous magician, Jamie you? Raven. It it turns out the magic money tree's just outside Burnley, and if you want to know why that is, you have to watch the documentary on Catch Up. I think that you did what you did so brilliantly, but it was like bringing the human face 
to the economic consequences which we've been talking about. And I think that that's something I'm finding increasingly difficult with the government, Matt Hancock announcing that, you know, hugging loved ones will be allowed from mid-May at the earliest. I mean, he actually said that, Liam, this week. And you think these people, you know, laying down these diktats, whilst the people you were talking to about, you, you went to talk to a wonderful lady and her dad who had set up a very successful hotel business with a thriving wedding sideline, didn't they? I mean, and, and they were absolutely backs up against the wall now. Indeed. What are they trying to do in that film, Alison, is get beyond the big macroeconomic numbers, which I write about in The Telegraph all the time, of course, and they're very important. And we're about to get a slew of them with Rishi Sunak's budget on mm, Wednesday, the 3rd of mm. March. But in that film, I tried to put a human face on what's happened to the economy during 2020. And so I did talk to lots of people running small businesses, as you say. I set the film in the northwest of England and the northeast to kind of hit the levelling up agenda and I also focused on levels of destitution in the UK, people yeah. in households where there's less than £100 a week for two adult households and less than £70 for a one adult household. What's happening in the Northwest in particular, really hit by lockdown, given that so much of the economy there isn't manufacturing, it's, it's customer-facing service industry, hospitality mm. and cultural stuff. That's what the Northwest is so good at with all its cultural vibrancy, the number of destitute households unfortunately in the northwest while it doubled in the uk during 2020 in the northwest it went up sixfold really really astonishing yeah, numbers really and shocking. i'm grateful to channel four for allowing me to make that film and indeed for the telegraph for allowing me to write about that film Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, heartfelt, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Do keep them coming. We love hearing from you. I think soon Copilot and I will just be dispensed with and we'll just read out the email. That's part of the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Here's one that caught my eye. In fact, there were many on the theme of why Alison Pearson is an idiot this week. So let's just take one random example, shall we? From Dr. Alan. I've greatly enjoyed listening to the Planet Normal podcast. They have helped to keep me and my wife sane in this crazy COVID world. However, Here we go. I'm Here right we to go. say that I found the last podcast when you discuss vaccine passports disturbing and depressing. Vaccine passports should not be needed for us to emerge from lockdown. They would be a further infringement of our freedoms and liberties. There is no need for such passports when we are on track to offer vaccination to all those at a significant risk of severe COVID and death. The rest of the population are at low risk and if they catch COVID it is likely to be asymptomatic or mild and similar to many other respiratory virus illnesses they've experienced in the past. It will give them better immunity than the vaccine and help to maintain herd immunity levels. There is no need for people at low risk to have a vaccine, far less be coerced into accepting it. Offering a vaccine to those at low risk is also very dubious ethically, particularly when we have no data on long-term side effects. As age reduces, so too does the risk from COVID. 
I should say that I am no anti-vaxxer. I am a doctor. Before retiring, I worked in public health and epidemiology for 35 years and spent a lot of time promoting vaccinations. Vaccine passports would apply unreasonable pressure to coerce individuals to take a medical intervention, a far cry from fully informed consent and personal choice. This has never been done before in this country. Such a system would be promoting discrimination based on whether you agree to a medical intervention. I would go so far as to describe it as a vaccine apartheid system. So we would have two classes of citizens with the liberties and freedoms of one class being curtailed because of their choice, unable to go to certain places, unable to join in certain activities. I don't want to see such a system in our country and our government should not introduce one and should actively dissuade any businesses from adopting one. I hope I have helped to persuade you to jump off the fence, Alison. You have, Alan, you have. It's going to roll on and on. The debate is going to roll on and on and on. But i tell you what reassures me, Alison. We have this debate, and it's absolutely healthy we have this debate. But in general, because the British public, for the most part, has a lot of faith in our public institutions, we have, across the world, one of the best take-up rates of vaccination. Yeah. And I think that is the bedrock of our response to this pandemic, not just the stoicism and patience, as you rightly said earlier, of the British people, but also that willingness among most of us to have the vaccine. And I think there's a lot in what Dr. Allen just said, the problems of coercion. I agree with that, Liam, but I also think that we have not been having this debate enough about these different issues in the media. And as we're recording this, a YouGov poll says that 82% support school pupils wearing masks in school all day. I would argue that we need more debate about topics like this, because then you wouldn't get 82% of the population supporting such draconian measures, which could potentially harm teenagers. So this is from Carolyn. Dear Alison and Liam, I know I'm getting old, but I didn't think my memory was quite that bad because I'm sure I had the COVID vaccine three weeks ago, one among millions of us. And it must have been a dream. After all, why have a vaccine that protects from serious illness and permits us to come out from prisons in which we've been incarcerated for so long when we're told we still have no freedom to go out and about? Are we supposed to be grateful for these miserable crumbs? The roadmaps turned out to be a very narrow lane with no passing places, while at the head of the traffic queue is a juggernaut, which breaks down every few yards, making progress impossible. There seems to be no logic behind the restrictions once again orchestrated by SAGE. Sadly, our weak governments happily forfeiting all the advantages of the vaccine rollout. Alison and Liam, you must feel you're banging your heads against the brick wall, but please don't give up. So many of us rely on you for our weekly fix of common sense. Thanks again for your words of wisdom. Thursday's visit to Planet Normal is always eagerly awaited. Best wishes from Carolyn. Oh, that's lovely. And here's Becca. I write this email early on Tuesday morning. I awake to realise that yesterday's announcement about the roadmap wasn't a bad dream and I do have to wait another seven weeks to open Crystal, my clothing boutique in Knoll on the outskirts of Solihull. I really, really just don't get it. I have adapted throughout the past year, posting regular videos on social media so I could continue to sell to my customers. Thankfully, they have been brilliantly received by my ever-loyal customer base. I will be fine, but so many shops won't be. Your biggest fan, Becca from Solihull. Now, this is a tough one. This is from Romy. There's rightly been increased attention on the terrible impact of lockdown on the mental health of children and the general population. 
Not much is said about those already suffering from mental health issues. I've had a very rough last decade struggling with complex mental issues. I moved back with my wonderful mum and endured traumatic hospitalisation. But in 2019, I saw a private psychiatrist thanks to the generosity of one of my mum's parishioners. She's a vicar. The psychiatrist gave me the first proper diagnosis that made sense. Mixed states, bipolar with post-traumatic stress disorder. Having tried practically all psychiatric medication to no avail, I did get hope of an effective treatment, electromagnetic brain stimulation, which has a good track record for treating medication-resistant mental conditions. I saw an NHS psychiatrist in March 2020, and she supported my application to have this treatment on the NHS. Then we entered lockdown. A year on and, quote, because of COVID, the funding application form for my treatment has still not been submitted or even filled in. No one can tell me why. There's been an ongoing battle and constant obfuscation between my GP and the local NHS trust over who's responsible. All I've had in the way of support from the NHS over the last year has been three 20-minute phone calls from a different psychiatrist and medication that I had to come off because it was making my condition worse. It's been a horrific year. My mental health's nosedived. My father died of a heart attack alone at home in April. I can't visit my 95-year-old grandmother who's deteriorating with dementia in a care home in Germany. I feel she'll die of a broken heart from not seeing me, my mum and sister, before she passes away. Before lockdown, I was very ill, but re-engaging with the world. Small things like going to a shopping centre, cafes, restaurants, day trips to London, visiting my dear grandma, they really helped. But lockdown has shut down not only my treatment, but the engagement with the world I needed to stay afloat. Now I'm really struggling, struggling to eat enough. My days are rituals, PTSD, flashbacks and anxiety. In my 20s, I studied for a PhD. Now in my 40s, I can't even focus enough to read a chapter of a book in one go. Alison and Liam, I often cry. I'm existing, but most definitely not living. I only discovered Planet Normal in January and really wish I had had your calm, compassionate and fact-based commentary as my companion throughout last year. Thank you so much for being a ray of light and even sometimes managing to make me laugh. Mm. With my best wishes to you, Romy. Oh, goodness, Romy. I had to read that out, Alison. I'm sorry. We get so many emails, don't we? We do. But- we do. And our, our heart goes out to you, Romy, and you're not, you're not alone. You're not alone and many, many people feeling that bad and, and, and confident we're moving into, into brighter times. And you will thrive again. You will. This is clearly a woman of high intellect, of high integrity, family oriented. Hmm. Just hang in there and keep, keep your chin up. Human beings need contact, Liam. People need to see other people. So this is from Bruce, who was paying my co-pilot a compliment. You know, I usually like to run you down, but every so often we just have to... <laughs> I feel compelled to write having watched Liam's excellent Dispatches documentary. As someone who's worked in the city most of my life, I am well versed with economics and the in vogue modern monetary theory. So whilst that was interesting, what really struck me was the staggering distress that was portrayed out in the provinces and industrial heartland. It struck me that it is as if this has been going on behind closed doors. 
If people were fed a diet of this on TV every night, alongside the COVID-19 obsession pieces, we might be living in a world with a great deal more perspective. Congratulations to you, Liam. I hope this leads to a more balanced journalism in the weeks ahead as we reopen. It is clear to me that we must, as an imperative, throw away caution on COVID and confront the very real and pressing risks of life elsewhere. Here, here, Bruce. Well, thank you, Bruce, and thank you, Alison, for reading that out. What do you mean by that? <laughs> what, saying nice things about you? Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Must be some agenda going on somewhere. I think you're usually quite pleased enough with yourself already. But on this occasion... Ooh, here it comes. On this occasion. God, five seconds of praise there before the... <laughs> I, know. <boom. laughs> I know. I know. So this is from Lindsay, moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on. Dear Planet Normal, thanks so much for being there. I look forward to your weekly podcast, Lifeline, Amidst the Madness... I really appreciate the balance and integrity of your reporting. Worryingly, as we've been closed down as a society, we're unable to express our dissent at the current state of affairs. I decided after yet another rant at the latest government atrocity to pen a letter to my MP. Please do ask your listeners to similarly scribe their concerns to their MPs and please, please keep your Planet Normal podcast going. I love the warmth and humour and a quick one from Linda because this is a shout out to Louisa and Reese, our fabulous production mm, team yes. really brilliant writes Linda five stars again for Planet Normal a few months ago I barely knew what a podcast was like <laughs> someone else I know co-pilot Pearson <laughs> my daughter-in-law though helped me to listen with guidance from your fabulous backstage crew and I'm now happily hooked you are brave astronauts and brave journalists thank you Planet Normal well thank you Linda for listening you, Linda. and spread the word and here's one from Robin Alison and Liam, you've covered the plight of university students on Planet Normal, highlighting how they've been forgotten during this pandemic. Enough, Boris. Once again, students have been left completely in the dark by this government. Most sectors of society have been given target dates for the grand unlocking, yet uni students have simply been told their cases would be reviewed during the Easter holidays. It's as if they are some form of underclass. Our 20-year-old undergraduate son, I've got one of those, Robin, is in his second year at uni. He's coped admirably over the last few months with very limited online teaching at home. This has required huge self-motivation and drive, yet we've also experienced the mood swings and forlorn moments of lost hope. He has met up with several of his old schoolmates for one-to-one walks. I've taken the opportunity to speak to most of them, but I must say they feel like lost sheep, with little to look forward to as future opportunities for both work and fun slip away. This has to stop. These students have worked so hard to achieve a place at university and have been completely neglected by this government. I have been a Conservative voter all my adult life and I will not forget this. Keep up the good work, co-pilots, Robin. Well... Both Liam's and my hearts go out to you, Robin, because we, we've got children very much in that situation. So that's it for Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. I don't think we can go, Liam, this week without my absolute favourite story. You ready for this? Go on then. A man wanted by police handed himself in so he wouldn't have to spend more time in lockdown with the people he lived with. (laughs) Officers said this man was wanted for recall to prison and gave himself up at Burgess Hill Police Station to, quote, get some peace and quiet. The wanted male, 
not married to Alison Pearson, strangely, handed himself in yesterday afternoon after informing us he would rather go back to jail than have to spend more time with the people <laughs> he was living with. And so say all of us, Halligan. He speaks God. for a nation. He speaks <laughs> he for a nation. Do please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others to find us helping the Planet Normal family to grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt and our editor Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.